of Book of Forensics. I am your MC this week. My name is Nicole and I'm joined here again by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This week we're going to be doing a part two to our Unsolved Mysteries episode that we did this past October. It was our spooktacular stories and last Friday, today's Monday, um, we hit one year. So happy one year anniversary to us. This is a huge kind of deal for us. We didn't expect things to go so smoothly in a year (laughs) but thank you to everyone who participated in our most recent giveaway if you didn't know we had a giveaway you should follow us on our social medias especially instagram at what the forensics it went super well and this winner was audrey lambert so thank you journey is going to send out your prize since she is also in alberta So keep an eye out for your mail, and if you're feeling real excited, take us in a story when you get it, and we will share that off. And now, down to business. This episode, Journey's going to be telling us all about the case of the Cleveland Torso Murderers. Rebecca will be telling us about Jack the Stripper, or Hammersmith Murder Case. And then I'll be telling you guys about the Long Island Serial Killer, which is also known as Lisp. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descri- excuse me, wow. detailed descriptions of castrations, decapitation, dismemberment, asphyxiation, and sexual assault. So on that note, I am going to pass the mic over to Journey. Thank you. Um, so I know you guys can't see me, but I put pictures on the slides if you guys want to follow along while I'm like talking because they just helped and they're cool. Um, so, and I'll put these up on probably our, like, picture sources list or whatever on our website if you guys want to have a look, too. Um, so, the Cleveland Torso Killer was active in the 1930s in Cleveland, Ohio, obviously. Um, he, more specifically, the area that he was active in was called the Kingsbury Run, um, which is, like, creek, like, riverbed area that goes from East 90th Street to Kingsman Road, southeast to the... Cuyahoga River. These street names really don't mean much to me, but I figure if we have like a listener in Cleveland or whatever, they'll be like, oh, I know where this is. So I included them. Um, A lot of homeless people lived in this area during the Great Depression, which we were right in the thick of. And so it's a very dangerous place to be in. And then there's an area east of the run that was kind of sketchy and it's known as the Roaring Third. And, um, from my understanding, it's similar to, like, a red light district. There's, like, brothels and flop houses and um, just a bunch of not great activities going on. And so it's in these areas where, like, the Cleveland Torso Killer was most active. And it can be his activity or awareness space, if you remember from our geographic profiling episode. Um, so this will be the first image on the sources slide or whatever. And it's just of the Kingsbury Run area in 1936. Okay, so in September of 1934, the lower half of a woman's torso, so from her stomach to above her knees, washed up on the shore of Lake Erie, and the county coroner, A.J. Pierce, noted that there was what looked like a chemical preservative that had turned the skin red, tough, and leathery, 
which is very interesting. Um, and this woman had never been identified and is referred to as the Lady of the Lake. She is known as Victim Zero because it wasn't until 1936 when she was actually included in the victim of the Cleveland Torso Killer. And when I was reading through, um, like, my sources and writing notes, I was so confused because the numbers did not add up. But then I realized they counted her as number zero, not number one. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And the first official victim was found one year later in September 1935. Uh, two teenage boys found a decapitated and castrated body of a white male at the base of Jackass Hill, which intersects with Kingsbury Run. Uh, so his body was naked except for a pair of socks, and uh, it was completely drained of blood, and there were rope burns around both wrists. Um, I wish my sources had more information about, like, what had happened to the bodies and, like, how they knew that it was drained of blood, because I'm really curious. Um, Coroner Pierce determined that the cause of death was decapitation, and this individual was identified via fingerprints as 28-year-old Edward Andrassy. Um, I apologize in advance if I called Andrew. Every single time I wrote his name, I wrote Andrew. <laughs> I was like, no, that's wrong. Um, so he allegedly had a criminal record and frequented the Roaring Third and was suspected to be gay. Um, the second victim was found near... Oops. Um, found near Edward, and he was also a white male who was decapitated and castrated. His body appeared to be covered in the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake. And so this man had been dead for a couple of weeks at the time of discovery, and he was never identified either. Um, victim number three was found in January 1936. Half of a female torso was found wrapped in newspaper and packed into two half-bushel baskets on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. Um, the rest of her body, except for the head, was found 10 days later on a vacant lot on Orange Avenue. And like Edward, the cause of death was decapitation, but the killer had apparently waited until rigor mortis had set in before they disarticulated her body. Um, I don't know how they knew this. I feel like there's got to be a simple explanation, but Googling, how can you tell rigor mortis has set in when disarticulation occurs, probably flagged me. For the <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, but I yeah, I was like really curious. I was just gonna say, I feel like we're all on, like, FBI's most flagged lists. Right? Of, like, the forensic students. <laughs> I don't even have an excuse now. I've graduated. I shouldn't be Googling this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but her body was identified via fingerprints as Florence Polillo, who worked as a waitress, barmaid, and prostitute, and she lived right at the edge of the Roaring Third. Um, this is a picture of her. And I then... have a question. Yes. Sorry, before. So when the... Cause of death was decapitation. That's meaning that they were alive at the time he cut their head off. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, not fantastic. No. Um, yeah. So, early in June 1936, two young boys found the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of pants close to a bridge. Um, the body of a man who was in his 20s was found the next day in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. So he's just really like, hey, I'm killing people. Um, this body was completely drained of blood, washed clean, and lo and behold, missing a head. So his cause of death was 
not surprisingly again, decapitation. And then even though he was covered in tattoos and police were able to collect his fingerprints, he was never identified. And they even made like a plaster cast of his face along with like a diagram or like map of his tattoos. And so this mask and diagram were presented at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. And I meant to Google what that was, but I forgot. So my apologies. Um, and more than 100,000 people saw his face and his tattoos and still no one was able to identify him or knew who he was. And so he's known as the Tattooed Man and his death mask in quotations and tattoo diagram are still on display at the Cleveland Police Museum, which is really cool. And I would love to go see that. Yeah, that'd be um, so neat to go and visit. Right? Side note, the Great Lakes Exposition was also known as the World Fair. Um, it commemorated the centennial of Cleveland's incorporation as a city. Oh, okay. So it was a way to energize a, a city hit hard by the Great Depression. So it highlighted the progress that had been achieved in the Great Lakes region in the last 100 years. Right. Okay, so I thought it was like more specific to the police, which is why they had him there. But I guess... It's just a way to get people to look at it and see if they can identify him. Um, in July 1936, a teenage girl found victim number five while she was walking through the woods on the west side of Cleveland. Uh, victim number five consisted of the neck down of a 40-year-old man who had been dead about two months. His head and bloody clothing were found nearby, and there was also a massive amount of blood that had soaked into the ground where he was found. So investigators suspect that he was killed where he found where he was found, and he was never identified. In September 1936, someone tripped over the upper half of a man's torso at a train station at East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run. Um, during the investigation, police searched a pool, which was so disgusting that it was described as a giant sewer, but they found like the lower half of the torso and most of each leg in it. Um, and over 600 people... That's so gross. Yeah. It's disgusting. Um, on my next slide, I have a picture of it, so I'll put... Or a picture of, like, the investigators, like, searching the pool, which I'll put on the, um, the source list. And so, yeah, over 600 people gathered to watch the diver recover the remains from the pool. And if Criminal Minds has taught us anything, we know that the killer was likely in that crowd. Um... And so this victim, victim number six, was in his late 20s, and his cause of death was also decapitation. Uh, the coroner noted that a lack of hesitation marks at the site of disarticulation, so he suggested that the killer was strong and confident in what he was doing and was familiar with the human anatomy. Um, he also said that the head had been cut off in one stroke, so he had been very strong, because from what I've learned, it takes quite a bit of strength to cut off someone's head. And I cannot imagine just, like, chop head off. Do you think, though, he had, like, some homemade guillotine? That's possible. That I possibility? did not think about that, but that makes sense. Because I don't imagine anyone could, like, axe with a hand, their own force It's like a head off in one swing. But, like, I could picture a guillotine just taking it off. Yeah, like, I can't imagine a human like with just human strength being able to do that yeah 
Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I did not think of that, but that makes this a lot more likely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but victim six was also never identified. Um, And in a matter of one year, there had been six brutal killings, and the police had no clues or suspects. Uh, So in an effort to get some information, the police placed two undercover officers in the Roaring Third and the Run, and during the time they were undercover, the officers had interviewed more than a hundred, nope, more than fifteen hundred people, and the department had interviewed more than five thousand, and so this made it the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history as of like nineteen thirty six, which is crazy because they never caught the guy. Uh, spoiler, and uh, <laughs> fast forward to February nineteen thirty seven, the upper half of a woman's torso was found on the shore east of. Brattonall. I'm not sure how to say that, so if I butchered it, my apologies. Uh, victim number seven's cause of death was not decapitation, as her head was removed after she was already dead. The coroner did not identify what her actual cause of death was, but the rest of her body washed ashore three months later, and it was determined that she was in her mid-twenties, but she was never identified. And then in June 1937, a human skull was found under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge by a teenage boy. Uh, Next to the skull was a burlap sack containing the rest of the skeleton. And these remains were unofficially identified as 40-year-old Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue via her dental records. Uh, They didn't really specify why it was unofficial, but I'm assuming because dental records are unreliable. I guess, no, that's bite mark analysis. Dental records would, are, an, are a reliable form of identification. Um, yeah, and even though they knew quite a bit about her, they still were not able to find a suspect in her death. Um, and then in July 1937, a young member of the National Guard saw a piece of victim number nine floating in the wake of a tugboat. And over the next couple days, police were able to recover the entire body minus the head from the Cuyahoga River. And the abdomen of this individual was gutted and the heart was ripped out, which is a marked increase in violence of this killer. Um, This victim was male in his late 30s and was never identified. We're going to skip ahead one year to April 1938 when the lower half of a woman's leg was found on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. Over the next month, police pulled out two burlap sacks from the river that contained the torso and most of each leg. Um, the coroner's found, or the coroner found drugs in this individual's system, but he was never able to determine whether they were from recreational use or from the killer because they never found her arms, and she was never identified. And then in August 1938, the torso of a woman was found wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer, and then wrapped in an old quilt. Her arms were found in a makeshift box that was wrapped in brown butcher paper and rubber bands. And her head was found in a similar box and wrapping paper. And the coroner noted that some of the pieces looked like they had been refrigerated, which is odd, but not out of the realm of possibility with this killer. Um, so while the police were searching the area for more pieces of this individual, they stumbled upon another body. So both victims, 11 and 12, were put in a location that was easily visible from the office, from the window of the office of the safety director, Elliot Ness. And I talk a bit about him a little later on. You know him! I had no idea Is who this he the was. the Elliot Ness? Yeah. 
I only know him from TV shows and stuff. He wasn't he like some detective, like some crazy good detective. Yeah, he's like a big deal, and everyone was so excited. They're like, "Yay, he's gonna yeah. come solve this!" And I was like, "I've never heard of this guy." So for some reason, I don't know why I didn't think he was a real person, but in an episode of Bones, Booth goes back. Maybe it's Booth. Maybe it's supernatural. I don't know. They go back to this time period and they work with Elliot Ness to solve a case. Oh wow. I feel like it's not Bones, I, then, if that's the that case. That does not sound like <laughs> something that would happen in Bones. <laughs> but Booth, I'm pretty sure, like, is obsessed with Elliot Ness. I could be wrong, though. Anyways, I know of him. Okay, yeah, because I heard in my research, they're like, yeah, he's super popular in the true crime world. And I was like, I've never heard of this guy, so I'm really letting everyone down. <laughs> but yeah, so neither of these victims were ever identified, and they were the last deaths attributed to the Cleveland Torso Killer. So from 1934 to 1938, we had 12, 13 individuals who had been killed by the Cleveland Torso Killer, if we include the Lady of the Lake, which I do. Oh, right. Yeah. Because there's 12 victims, but then she's victim, victim zero would zero. be 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so confusing. I don't like how they did that. <laughs> Um, so during an attempt to find someone responsible for these murders, 35 police officers and Elliot Ness raided the village of homeless people in Kingsbury Run in the middle of the night, which is not great. Um, so they, like, gathered up 63 men, searched their shanties for clues, and then burned them to the ground. Um, so, since we know this is an unsolved case... We know that nothing came from this raid, and the public was mad about how they conducted themselves with this raid. Um, however, the killings did stop after they did this, which I think is just a coincidence. Um, but, surprise, in July 1939, an arrest was made. 52-year-old bricklayer Frank Dolezal was arrested for the murder of Florence Polillo. And it was uncovered that he had actually lived with her, and he was known to both Edward Andrassy and Rose Wallace, two of the other identified victims. So Frank did confess, in quotations, but it was so incoherent that its reliability is very suspect. And so his confession was described as, quote, incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details, almost as as if he had been coached, end quote. And if you remember what we learned about confessions, was he coached by the officers during the interview or the killer? We'll never know for sure because he actually was found dead in his cell before he could go to trial. And his death was very suspicious because he was five. Yeah, right. So he was five feet, eight inches tall, and he hung himself on a hook that was five foot seven inches off the ground. Um... And his autopsy showed that he had broken ribs that he had obtained while in the sheriff's custody. So this kind of also makes me think that he had been coached, in quotations, by the officers conducting the investigation. What do you mean? And uh, to the That makes sense. His death. Yeah, so they, like, beat a confession out of him. And killed him, basically, and staged his death, right? Yeah, that's what they think happened, yeah. Nice. Good, good. Yeah. And, yeah, to this date, no one other than the sheriff at the time believes that he was the killer. And in 2010, he was, like, officially cleared there. Like, he didn't do this. Even though he had long since passed away. Okay, so now I talk about Elliot Ness. 
And so he had a suspect who he believed was definitely the killer. And this suspect apparently taunted him for years after the killing stopped. And so Elliot Ness is famous in the true crime world. Um, as I've talked about, he was part, his like fame comes from him being a part of like the law enforcement group called the Untouchables because they couldn't be corrupted. And from 1930 to 1932, they actually were hired to end Al Capone's criminal empire, which they were very successful in. So that's why he's famous, because he got Al Capone off the street, which is huge. And so the people of Cleveland were so excited that he was on this case, because if anyone could solve it, it would be him. Or so they thought. Um, and this suspect that he had was Dr. Francis Sweeney who was a medic in World War One, so he had knowledge of human anatomy and has performed many amputations as a result. And unfortunately for Ness, Sweeney was a first cousin to a congressman, so Ness knew that he wouldn't be able to prosecute Sweeney successfully, which is why he actually never moved forward with the charges, which sucks. I feel like he still could have tried, though. Right? Like, if you had enough evidence to think that he was the killer you probably should have done it anyways but yeah at some point Sweeney had admitted himself into a psychiatric hospital but continued to send Ness taunts in the form of postcards um and so I have a picture on this slide which I'll put in our sources of just the guy with his sticking his tongue out which I think is hilarious (laughs) such a slap in the face like no 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 you can't catch me and I find it really funny um And then lastly, I just want to read you guys a letter that the Cleveland police received in December 1938 from someone who was claiming to be the killer. Um, They actually printed this letter in the newspaper, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, So it's addressed to Chief of Police Matowitz, and it reads, You can rest easy now, as I have come out as I have came out to sunny California for the winter, I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall soon astound the medical profession, a man with only a DC. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I know now the feeling of pasture, thorough, and other pioneers. Right now, I have a volunteer who will absolutely prove my theory. They called me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed but once here. The body had not been found and never will be, but the head, minus features, is buried in a gully on Sentry Boulevard between Western and Sentry Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of bodies I do. It is God's will not to let them suffer. And I I don't I really hope that's that that letter is from the actual Cleveland torso that killer. Sounded cause... really yeah. Sorry, I was gonna say that sounded really high and mighty. Like I am a revolutionary in surgery, and it's not my fault I murdered these people. Well, it sounds like he's experimenting on them. Like he's trying to attach someone's head to someone else's body. Oh, I didn't even think of that because I was just wondering too. Like where at least how you said, like, where the cuts were made. Sounds really strange. Mm -hmm. Like, just above the stomach to just above the knees on one of them, something like that. Like, it's just an odd place to disarticulate something. I feel like 
if this letter is like real or whatever, I feel like he's trying to do like a Frankenstein's monster kind of deal. Maybe. Or like that Criminal Minds episode where he's like cutting off body pieces or like their legs and then trying to attach them to someone else's. Ugh. Gross. So, either way, not fantastic. Um, but now it's thought that like Jack the Ripper, the Cleveland Torso Killer was just a mix of many people who copied each other to make it look like a serial killer. I didn't know that that's what we thought about Jack the Ripper, but I also don't know much about him. Um, and all official police records on this case have been lost, destroyed, or removed. So that's suspicious. Um, and I don't love that. But that's all that I have to share about this case. Interesting. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing. You're kind of, you're letting you're us welcome. down today, Journey. Not knowing Jack I'm the Ripper. Sorry. My true Ellie. crime knowledge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I honestly, I like feel like I knew that about Jack the Ripper. But I also remember watching a TV show that was like, Jack the Ripper's my dad. Something like that. <laughs> oh. And it went through like genealogical like records to try and prove who Jack the Ripper was. But I never watched the ending. So who knows? Interesting. Yeah. Because I thought we thought Jack the Ripper was like a dentist or something. Yeah, he was some medical professional, I thought, as well. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, Okay. Anyways, on that, I'm going to switch us over to the Long Island serial killer. Um, I'm going to be referring to him slash her. We don't know, but most likely a him um, as Lisk. They're an unknown killer who is believed to be responsible for killing 10 to 17 women, one man, and discarding their remains along the Ocean Parkway, which is in Long Island, New York over a period of nearly 20 years. So the start of the investigation in like December of 2010 actually happened by accident. Um, So authorities were initially searching for a 23, 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert. Sources vary on her age, so it was either one of those. But not to kind of confuse the timeline with jumping back and forth, I'm going to talk about her a bit later because she wasn't found until like after all of the other victims. Um, So basically she went missing though. And during the search for her, police found the remains of four women in the same marshy area in Gilgo Beach, Long Island, New York in December of 2010. And they were all within 500 feet of each other. So All I had no idea this was in like the 2000s. I had no idea either. It was like I thought 90s. this was like the 80s? Nope. Nope. Um so 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew was found first. I apologize if I get any of these names incorrectly. 2 days later, 27-year-old Amber Costello, 22-year-old Megan Waterman, and 25-year-old Maureen Bernard Barnes were found. And these four women were dubbed the Gilgo Four initially because they were all found at the Gilgo Beach. So these four shared striking similarities in not only physical appearances, but their jobs and how their bodies were disposed of. So they were all five foot tall or shorter. So some of them were like 4'11", 4'10". They were all petite women weighing around 100 pounds and they had hazel green eyes. 
they were all sex trade workers that used Craigslist for their services. The cause of death for all of the women were, was asphyxiation, which meant that they were deprived of oxygen, and their bodies were all found in burlap bags. So a lot of similarities, and they were all found within 500 feet of each other. So, like, some of the police were saying, too, it just seemed like someone was driving down and then tossed them out and then kept going. But because of how secluded this one spot was, um, or desolate, they said, um, they didn't find them for years. So, wow. yeah. So the killings probably happened before 2010. Yeah, so it ranges from... Like, one of the victims who was later identified went missing in 2000, but really, like, 2007 to 2010 was the main time period. Oh, okay. Um, So the chief of Suffolk County detectives at the time, his name was Dominic Verone, he mentioned that he believed the burlap was used because the material holds moisture and dampness in really well, and it's breathable. So this would help promote decay, and the color of the burlap would actually act as camouflage in the area. So that's why they think, like, they kind of went unnoticed for quite a while. Um, of the Gilgo Four, Maureen Bernard Barnes was the first to disappear. She went missing in July of 2007. So she was a single mother of two children, and although she had kind of a tough upbringing, she was a little troubled... Things at the time um, seemed to be looking up for her in the early 2007s. So she landed a job at a telemarketing place. She was succeeding in her position. She got her own apartment and she was really proud of what she was doing because she was able to help provide for her kids. But after her disappearance, her sister had actually logged into her email account and noticed that Maureen was actually under a lot of financial pressure at the time. So she was about to be evicted from her apartment, and she was also facing expensive court fees because she was trying to fight for custody of one of her children. So I don't know if she had full custody of her second child or her other child, and she was fighting for full custody of the other one. Um, That wasn't really clear. But regardless, she was in need of money, and so she had resorted back to sex trade work for some extra cash. And she had actually gone through, like, a a span of I think it was seven months or so like it was quite a few months of not being in that trade um but after her disappearance Maureen's co-worker and friend her name's Sarah Carnes she actually received a phone call from a man from an unknown number um yeah a couple days after her she disappeared and he told Sarah that he had seen Maureen that she was staying at a quote whorehouse in Queens end quote but Sarah didn't believe him since Maureen was said to be independent and I think Sarah was also a sex trade worker um so I think she was like Maureen would never go to a quote unquote whorehouse um but the man on the line then proceeded to describe Maureen perfectly to Sarah like Sarah said it was described to a T um he would not identify himself And he would not tell Sarah the location of this, quote, whorehouse, unquote. So unfortunately, police weren't able to get much from the call. But it did kind of help build a profile for the killer. um, Because Sarah, the friend, said that the man spoke over the phone. um, 
that he didn't have an accent. So she said that, quote, he definitely isn't from New York, Boston, or Maine, because those are the strongest places the accent comes out of. But he accentuated his S's and his T's. He spoke properly, end quote. So it kind of gives police an idea for who they're looking for. I have a question. Yep. Um, so she said that he didn't have an accent. Yep. But if he lived in those areas, would you hear their accents? Like, if he was from New York, would it sound like an accent to her who was also from New York? I feel like maybe because, like, just in the way that they talk. Like, it's just a little bit different? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good point. Um, okay. I'm not 100% sure on that. Fair enough. Um, the second of the Gilgal Fours to go missing was Melissa Barthelmy. She went missing on July 10th, 2009. So a week after her disappearance, Melissa's younger sister Amanda started to receive several phone calls from Melissa's cell phone. And friends and families also were receiving calls from Melissa's phone as well. And so Amanda, expecting her sister to be on the other end of the line, was super shocked to hear a man's voice. And this man would, like, taunt her. He would ask her if she was, quote, a whore like her sister, end quote. And the content of the calls became increasingly more disturbing. Um, He told Amanda that her sister was dead and that he was going to, quote, watch her rot, end quote, and told her details of her older sister's murder. Um, And he called her seven separate times. So it wasn't really just like a one-time, hey, I killed your sister, this is what happened. No, it was seven times over a couple days, I'm pretty sure. That's crazy. It's weird that he, like, would call them after and be like, hey, killed your loved one. And, like, (laughs) police also said that this kind of helped with the profile because not all killers do this so it kind of says a lot about who the killer was and like their motives and how sadistic he was and that kind of thing yeah um do you you might not know the answer to this question but do you think that they would have been able to like triangulate where his cell phone was is that even a real thing we can do in real life so although they weren't able to tell who was calling they traced the calls to madison square garden um So that was about an hour's drive from Gilgo Beach and also from Massapequa, I think, which is 20 minutes away from Gilgo Beach. So they knew where the calls were coming from, but they had no idea. Like, because I guess they're so public and there's so many people there, like, he was really smart about not being able to, like, out himself if they were able to trace him. Yeah, that's a very public area. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's believed that this man, like the caller, is Melissa's killer. But from what I've read, there hasn't really been any more information that's come of this. Like they just kind of left it at someone called after she went missing. Um, We think it's the killer. And then that's it. They just didn't move forward with it at all. Yeah, this this whole... um, I talk about it at the end. This whole case is not great. It wasn't conducted properly in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, and it's very infuriating. Mm-hmm. But 22-year-old Megan Waterman 
she was the third of the Gilgo Four to disappear. She went missing on June 6th, 2010, and she was also the youngest of the four. So um, her abusive boyfriend at the time, lovely, lovely man, he would prostitute Megan out, setting her up with all her dates and clients because a gentleman, yeah. Um, (laughs) And apparently he has no information about the client she was with the night she went missing, even though he handled all of the clients and the booking and the planning for her. Um, So that's suspicious. I also Mm -hmm. couldn't find anything else on that. So he wasn't (laughs) even a suspect (laughs) from what I've seen. Are you serious? They didn't even, like, look into him? Like, he was kind of on their radar, but for other reasons. And, like, he wasn't a suspect um, for the Lisk killings. Right. Yeah. Did they, like, arrest him because he was a pimp? And that's illegal? Yeah, it was, like, for other charges. Okay. Yeah. He was already on their radar for. Fair enough. Um, unfortunately, Megan was taken from her three-year-old daughter, and who, when interviewed a decade later, she actually told reporters that she still remembers when her mom went missing at three years old, and she was confused oh as to why her mom, like, just wasn't around anymore. And it wasn't until she was older that she Googled her mom's name and found out what happened because no one had told her the details of what happened with her mom. So she had no idea That's... her mom was a sex trade worker. She had no idea her the boyfriend pimped her out, like all of this stuff. That's traumatizing. Just a little bit. Oh my goodness. The poor child. Yeah. Um, and so 27-year-old Amber Costello was the last one of the four to have disappeared. She was last seen September 2nd, 2010. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of information on Amber and her life. Um, so that's really all I know about her. But three months after this discovery in December of 2010, I think it was, um... Let me see, sorry. Yeah, three months after, the remains of 20-year-old Jessica Taylor were found, which were also found near Gilgo Beach. Her skull, hands, and forearm were found, and they were matched using DNA. At the time, she was living in Manhattan when she disappeared in July of 2003, and it was then that Jessica's torso was found on top of a scrap wood pile at the end of a paved access road in Manorville, New York. So Manorville is about an hour east of Gilgo Beach. And she had a tattoo on her torso, but it had been mutilated, so it made identification difficult. And in 2003, I don't know if they had the advancements in technology to match tattoos with victims, like run those searches. Um but they didn't say anything about it in any of the sources that I read. Less than a month later, three more bodies were found. So in April of 2011, a two-year-old girl, an unidentified Asian man, and a woman who went by Jane Doe number six, but she was just recently identified as Valerie Mack this past May of 2021. So they're still looking into this case now, which is interesting. Do you know how they identified her? Um, it was through genetic genealogical geneal gene that word genealogy genealogy tools. Yes, that word. 
Um, I love how common we are, or like, I love how common that's being used now in investigations. It's actually helping so much. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so Valerie was a 24 year old sex trade worker when she disappeared in 2000. Partial remains of hers were found in Manorville, um, which is where Jessica's torso was found. And this was found on November 19th, 2000. So it was the same year she disappeared. Um, it, it was wrapped in garbage bags and dumped in the woods near the same road that Jessica's remains were found. Um, but they couldn't identify the torso at the time. Her right foot was... Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Was she connected to this case because she was found kind of in the same area as Jessica? Yeah. Yeah. So the two of them are said to be linked because of how they were disposed of and how they were, like, dismembered and all of that. And how closely okay. their bod- how close their bodies were. Oh, okay. Um, her right foot was also cut off above the ankle. And it's thought that this was done to remove any identifying mark or any tattoos. But more of her remains were found 11 years later along Ocean Parkway. So that's like the main kind of highway that goes through the area. I'm going to post a picture too to our source list, which like maps out where everyone was found as well. Um, So her head, her right foot and hands were found on April 4th, 2011. And she unfortunately remained unidentified for another 10 years. So like I said, it was in 2021 where um, the genealogy tools were used to identify her. English Um, is hard. I have another question. Yeah. So they cut her right foot off to avoid identifying her. Mm -hmm. But then he still dumped and found her right foot. Mm -hmm. And it had no identifying information on it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There wasn't a lot on that. It was just kind That's of a, funny. okay, that happened. We're moving on. <laughs> so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the others, Valerie matched the physical descriptions of the Gilgo Four. So she was five foot. She weighed around 100 pounds. She had brown hair and also had hazel eyes. So, like I said, because of the similarities of dismemberment and disposal, um, authorities believe that there's a link between Jessica and Valerie, but they haven't been able to find concrete evidence to make that link yet. Um, A week after the three sets of remains were found in April of 2011, the last two of the ten victims were discovered in a neighboring county, and this is... Um, one of the victims was, is who they believe to be the two-year-old's mom. So they think that they, like, separated them. Um, and I'm not sure how they know that it's her mom, but they think that, at least. Um, so at the end of 2011, Shannon Gilbert's remains were discovered in a marsh. So this was the individual, the woman who kind of kick-started this accidental search of Lisk. Um, she was also an escort that was visiting a client from Craigslist in Oak Beach, which is a gated community in Long Island on May 1st of 2010 when she disappeared. So she was dropped off at her client's house at 2 a.m. And nearly three hours later, a 23 minute frantic 911 call was made by her 
where she's heard saying, quote, they're going to kill me, end quote. And this is the last time anyone heard from her. Oh, that's so sad. Which makes me think because she used they. Yeah. So I don't know if Lisk is a singular person or multiple people. They don't know either, which is good. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's also believed, though, that she was a drug user. They believe that she could have been in a like a frantic state because of the drugs and was kind of just having like a bad trip but they don't have a way to prove this they're just kind of going on speculation well that's kind of like robert picton he would often like give his victims drugs before Mm -hmm. and then he would kill them so she could have been on something and then yeah yeah so a pocketbook purse shoes cell phone and jeans belonging to shannon were found in the marsh and then a week later her remains were found and this was just under half a kilometer away from her belongings. So they were very That's close. Very far. Mm-hmm. Um, the infuriating part of this is that authorities don't believe that her death is related to Lisk, despite autopsy findings that are consistent with strangulation. Um, they determined her death to be an accident, um, which... I don't understand, and they said that they mo- she most likely got lost in the marshland, either dying of exposure to the elements or that it was an accidental drowning. Um, but see, with, like, she called the police all frantic, and then why would she even be in this marshland in the first place to get lost in there? <laughs> and where her body was found in the marsh, too, like she couldn't have drowned really um and so my theory is that they are using her job as an escort her drug use Mm -hmm. her past history as an excuse and saying that all of this is what caused her and that she's just another sex trade worker and bad things happen, sorry, like, that kind of thing. That's 100% what they're doing. Yeah. And so there are a few other victims that are thought to be Lisk victims, but again, there aren't, like, there isn't enough evidence to link them together. Um, sorry if you heard that door slam. Uh, these victims are an unidentified young African-American female whose dismembered torso was found at Hempstead Lake State Park on June 28th, 1997. So this was one of the earliest, well, the earliest that could have been Lisk, a Lisk victim. Um, on March 3rd, 2007, a suitcase containing the dismembered torso of an unidentified Hispanic or African American washed up on a beach in Mamaroneck. Uh, Tanya Rush, 39 years old of Brooklyn, her dismembered body was discovered in a suitcase on the side of Southern State Parkway in Belmore, New York. The remains of an Asian woman between the ages of 20 and 30 years old were found in a sandy area on Sheep Lane in Lattingtown. Um, and on March 16, 2013, 31-year-old Natasha Jugo disappeared after leaving her home in Queens. On June 24, 2013, her body washed up on Gilgo Beach. So, f- 
from me reading like the types of victims and how they were found and whatever i kind of think that there's two separate people because half mm-hmm. of them were dismembered the other ones weren't really like they just don't really all add up to one um but they don't know they haven't found anything shocker spoiler like journey said no one was caught <laughs> this is why it's not case. Think- <laughs> do you think that um there was like a couple or like a team serial killer and they just like switched dominant and submissive for each case and that's why there was so much like disparity like for someone like maybe for a dismembered person's death someone else was in charge but then for someone who wasn't dismembered the other person was in charge yeah because with asphyxiation too like I feel like you'd have to be more dominant to actually be there to restrict oxygen flow. That's a Um, very personal way of killing. Yeah, so you wouldn't get much of a submissive to do that. But if afterwards they may partake in the dismembering, dismemberment. Yeah, that's that's what they get out of it. Yeah. The dismemberment, yeah. Like maybe we could probably bring this up to the police force. They probably haven't thought of it yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they'd be like mm, no no <laughs> okay have a nice Moving have on. a nice day <laughs> um so the lisk profile that's been created to date is that it's a white male approximately 20 to 40 years old likely a long island resident with deep knowledge of the south shore because of how like desolate the areas were um like you had to know where you're going um as well as access to burlap sacks um, because several of the victims were found in them. So it was also hypothesized that the killer was familiar with law enforcement techniques um, because of how they were able to kind of evade, like, capture and kind of hide under the radar. Yeah. So, moving on to possible suspects, there's been a couple. Uh, no arrests have been made. Shocker. Um, the first one was John Bitrolf. He was a carpenter from Manorville. So if we think back, it was Valerie and Jessica. Their partial remains were found in Manorville. Um, he was announced as a suspect in at least one of the Liske cases in September of 2007. Shocker, he had previously been convicted that same year of murders of two sex workers in 1993 and 1994. Uh, nothing came of this. I don't know what happened. I could not find what happened, but he was not arrested for this. Oh my goodness, he's convicted of murder. And they were like, no. Of it wasn't you. Sex trade workers. Of sex trade workers. And like 98% of victims were sex trade workers. That makes me want to scream. So, yep. It just gets worse, too. The last one's so infuriating. So, Joseph Brewer, he was another suspect. He was one of the last people known to have seen Shannon Gilbert alive um, because he was her client of the night of her disappearance. But he said that shortly after she arrived at his place, she started acting erratically and fled his home. Probably because he was trying to kill her. Hmm. But nothing came of it. (laughs) So do we know? No. (laughs) Two days after Shannon's disappearance, Peter Hackett, who's an Oak Beach resident, and Joseph Brewer's neighbor, 
phoned Shannon Gilbert's mother. He told her that he was taking care of Shannon and that he, quote, ran a home for wayward girls, end quote. Um, for some reason, he would deny that he ever called Shannon's mother, but because technology exists, investigators were able to confirm through phone wow, through phone records that he had called the mom twice. And the marshy area where Shannon's remains were found were close to Hackett's backyard, and her personal items and clothing were um, found directly behind his property in the marsh. Okay, I just googled him because his name sounds really familiar. He's also a surgeon. Yep. So he oh said gosh. that he was taking care of Shannon. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't know if, like, like your case, if he was, like, experimenting, if whatever, if she was drugged because she left in a frantic and was said to be, like, on something. Yeah. But apparently he had a history of inserting himself into or exaggerating his role in certain major events. So investigators kind of saw that and were like, mm, sorry, he couldn't have done it then. Uh, so he was ruled out as a suspect. Which okay. is good. Um, criminal mind shouldn't be my only source of knowledge on things, but <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, sorry. Um, don't suspects usually insert themselves in the investigations when they've done it, and they use that yeah, to rule him out? Yeah, because they like to out? know what the police have. Because mm-hmm. when if killers do that, it's because they like to like play games with the police, basically, and like know yeah. what they have on the killer. Because Ed Kemper did that too. He used to like eat at the diner with all the police and was friends with the police. <laughs> so that's good. That is good. Uh, another possible suspect was businessman James Bissett. Two days after Shannon's remains were found, he took his own life. Uh, he was, well, one of his businesses, I guess he had multiple. He was the main supplier of burlap in the region. So he had a lot <laughs> of access to burlap. But he was dead, so he could not be ruled Uh-oh. a suspect because he unfortunately took his own life. Do we know why? Nope. I guess you don't really need to know why. That's for him to know. But, um, yeah, he was ruled out a suspect after that. And this is the good one. So the last individual who was rumored to possibly have been the killer was James Burke. So the police have denied him as a suspect, but literally everyone else is like, this is the guy. He did it. So he took over as chief of detectives after Dominic Verone was told he had to retire from his current position as chief in 15 days or he'd be demoted to captain. So the current, the chief of detectives on the case was called up said he had to retire or he'd be demoted and he was pulled off the case while Burke took over. Weird. Mm-hmm. That's not suspicious in the slightest. Nope. And so Verone, the previous chief, he had a lot of knowledge on the case, obviously, since he was working on it. But for some reason, he was not allowed to share any of this information with the new investigators that were assigned to the case. 
um, which I found odd. Because mm-hmm. they're basically just having to start from scratch, which I get, like, if you getting fresh eyes, but there's just so much to the case that you kind of need old information. You, yeah, you can't just pick up a case without any other information at all. Exactly. You're just starting all over. Yeah. It also came to light that in the 90s, Burke had hired a sex trade worker for services, having sex in the back of his police car, while also failing to safeguard his gun. So I'm pretty sure I briefly read in one source, so I don't know how accurate it is. She, like, ended up with his gun or something, and then, like, she returned it to the police department. I have no idea. But he... Oh, okay, that makes sense is why they would mention that. Yeah. Um, so he managed to keep his job after this. But, um, Shannon's attorney, I think it was, it's the individual trying to move charges forward with, like, Shannon's death, saying that it's not accidental. Mm -hmm. Um, he went on to say, quote, hmm, the man who patronized sex workers, dot dot dot, is in charge of the investigation of murdered sex workers, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) So doesn't look good for him for sure mm-hmm. and while in charge uh he also ended all cooperation with the fbi he just said nope and kicked them out wow in december of 2012 um burke's police truck was robbed where his duffel bag was stolen and it apparently contained his gun belt porn and sex toys so Interesting, but... He kept that in his police (laughs) truck? (laughs) Yep. With his gun belt in there, too. Oh. So, um, the thief was arrested, but he was locked into a room, chained to the floor, and according to court testimony, was beaten by detectives before Burke himself took over beating him. And this happened in the 2010s? 2012, yep. While the case was- Oh my, no. Like, the bodies were found in 2011. Like, this was during the case. And they just beat this guy because they wanted to. Yep. Because he was a thief. Yep. So he was charged um, because he also apparently conspired with other law enforcement who witnessed the assault to cover it up. And he also intimidated them to stay quiet. So this guy is just an all-around great person. And also chief of detectives on a- serial murder case i think that he's just a bad cop and just a bad guy i don't actually think that he was the killer yeah that's very true like i think overall he's just a scumbag yeah but i don't know that he killed them i'm not getting killer vibes no but he was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison thank god in february 2016 after pleading burke was yeah burke was Okay. After um, pleading guilty to violating the thief's civil rights and conspiracy to obstruct justice. Oh, good. Uh, A day after he was indicted, the FBI officially joined the investigation after being blocked by Burke while he was chief. And um, the most recent update in the case is that a picture of a black leather belt embossed with either HM or WH. It just, like, depends what way you look at it. Um, right. This was released to the public in 2020, 
even though it was found during the initial stages of the investigation in 2011, uh, so the belt is believed to have been the killer's. They, the detectives have said that he most likely handled it. I don't know if they're looking for prints, but it was found at one of the dump sites. And when um, authorities were asked why it took so long for them to release the image, the question was dodged and they were replied with advancements in technology have made it the right time to release this information. So from what I've read, no other details have been released just that this is a black leather belt with maybe initials belonging to the vic- to the killer, sorry. We don't know. Um, but if anyone knows anything about the case, there's a website called gilgonews.com and the Suffolk, 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 I don't know, County Pol- Suffolk. Suffolk County Police Department, that's where they post like all the latest updates when they identify victims, who to contact, like uh, uh, what's the word? Anonymous. Yep. You know what I mean. Yeah. Words just are not. Where funny. people can post anonymously if they have any information on the case. Yeah, like send it in to them. Yeah. But that is Lisk. It's uh. Yeah, that's that. Infuriating. <laughs> just a little bit. Oh my goodness. Sometimes I just want to, like, shake people and be like, think with your whole brain. Stop being an idiot. Exactly. I just, like, I don't get it. Like, do people actually go on and think, yeah, this is normal, this is fine, nothing's wrong with this at all. Mm -mm." Yeah, this guy killed two sex trade workers, let's not investigate him for the murders of more sex trade workers. Come on! (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. But... (laughs) With that infuriating story added on top to Journey's infuriating unsolved story, Rebecca, do you want to tell us about Jack the Stripper? Absolutely. Um, So sort of building on Journey's case and your case, um, Jack the Stripper targeted only prostitutes um, and also only petite women, like Journey's victims. Um, So... To begin, the Hammersmith murders were committed by an unknown killer who was dubbed by the media as Jack the Stripper. I'll get into why that was later. Um, But he reigned terror across West London from 1964 to 1965. So his crime spree was only really like a year long. Um, During this time period, six women's bodies were found naked and discarded uh, in or around the Thames River that was flowing through the Hammersmith district. So there isn't a lot of information available about each of the victims, but I will share what is known about them and how they were found at each crime scene. Um, The confirmed cases of the Hammersmith murders begin on the 2nd of February in 1964. A man was walking his dog along the Thames River on the morning of February 2nd, and on his walk, he came across a dead body um, washed up on the bank of the river. He reported that initially he just felt really annoyed by his find um, because he didn't actually know it was a body. He assumed it was a discarded mannequin from one of the nearby factories, and he was angry about how much trash that they were producing. Um, But when he got a closer look at it, he realized it was a real human body and promptly reported it to the police. Um, So it was found that this body belonged to 30-year-old Hannah Tailford. At the time... 
of the discovery, her body was found on the riverbank just down from the Hammersmith Bridge, and Hannah had already been missing for 10 days prior to her discovery. Hannah had two children. Uh, she was also pregnant when she was murdered. Um, I wasn't able to find how tall she was, but it was noted that all of the victims were between like 4'11 and like 5'2". Um, so she was of short stature. And in addition to all of this, she was a known prostitute around West London. So unfortunately, likely because she was a prostitute, police didn't really take her death seriously. Um, during the investigation, it was found that she was likely thrown into the river only about 24 hours prior to her discovery. And she was thrown in around Duke's Meadow. Um, she was thrown in without her clothing, so it didn't just come off in the water. Um, she was also missing several teeth um, and was strangled and was also found with her own underwear shoved in her mouth. Oh. Yeah. So despite all of these findings that very clearly market a suspicious death, um, likely just because she was a prostitute, police ruled her death a suicide and moved on. So... Uh, just a couple months later, this was on the 8th of April in 1964, another naked body of another woman was found floating again face down in the Thames River, this time below Duke's Meadow, so where they believe Hannah's body was initially placed in the river. Um, this second victim's name was 26-year-old Irene Lockwood, and just like Hannah, she was short in stature, she was pregnant, she was a prostitute, and she was also found naked and strangled. It was at this point that police realized that Hannah might not have actually committed suicide and that they may actually have a serial offender running around. Um, so they initially linked the death of Irene Lockwood to those of Hannah Tailford, as well as a woman named Gwyneth Reese, who was a possible victim of the same killer, which I will get into later. Um, but for some reason, they opted not to include Reese in the official victim list. So shortly after Lockwood's body was found, the media began publishing news surrounding the case, and they likened the unknown killer to Jack the Ripper. Um, they did this because of the similarity of the victims, how they were all found, or how they were all prostitutes that were being targeted, and they added stripper because all of the victims were found nude, which is why they came up with the name Jack the Stripper. Oh, I was really hoping that he was a stripper. <laughs> I don't like I was just like oh how does this tie in but that makes a lot more sense <laughs> yeah it's a it's a sad and sort of funny play on words of Jack the Ripper <laughs> mm -hmm. so as fear was raining down on West London because of the recent tragic deaths of various women Jack the Stripper struck again this time less than three weeks after his last victim Irene uh, was found the third confirmed victim was Helen Bartholomew, which I also notice um, Bartholomew was the last name of uh, one of Journey's victims, I believe. No, one of mine. Nicole's. One of yours, yeah. yeah. Um, so I just thought that was a strange coincidence. Um, and Helen Bartholomew was a 22-year-old Scottish woman who had previously been convicted of robbery in 1962 uh, and was serving time in a London prison, but she was released in 1963 after the truthfulness of the key witness in her trial was heavily questioned because of his own, uh, uh, sorry, his own involvement in criminal activity in the past. So even though she was released after spending less than a year in a London prison, um, she was told that she wasn't allowed to return to home in Scotland, so she had to remain in London. 
Um, unfortunately, this was possible. It wasn't a factor in her death. Um, but if she was allowed to return to Scotland, she probably wouldn't have been murdered. Um, so ever since the age of 16, Helen had been known to occasionally prostitute herself to make some extra money. Um, and she was doing it even more frequently after being released from prison in London. Um, so it was believed that she was actively working in the sex industry at the time of her death to make some extra money. So on the 24th of April in 1964, Helen's naked body was found in an alleyway in Brentford. And it's believed that her body wasn't also discarded in or right around the river because of its heavy police presence at the time because of the Jack the Stripper murders. So, like Hannah and Irene, Helen was of short stature, she had evidence of strangulation, and, like Hannah, was also missing a few teeth. Most notably, it was her front teeth that were missing from her body. The missing teeth came to be known as a signature of Jack the Stripper. Um, I'm unsure if Irene's teeth were missing. Uh, it never specified anywhere. However, pretty much every victim afterward was missing a few teeth. I have a question. Do you okay. know if they were like pulled from them or if they just had very poor dental hygiene because of the time? Uh, because it's noted in all of the cases, um, I am pretty sure that they specify that the teeth were pulled because okay, yeah. uh, it was always like the front teeth that were missing. Mm. Um, yeah. And it was pretty much every victim again, possibly except for Irene, just because nothing ever specified whether or not she was missing teeth. Okay. Do you think he was collecting those teeth as, like, keepsakes, or was it just, like, an accidental, like, he punched her in the mouth and they fell out kind of deal? There was no evidence of blunt force trauma, so, like, a punch would cause blunt force trauma, mm -hmm. um, so I'm led to believe that they were pulled and he did probably keep them as souvenirs, um, although I'm not positive as I never came across that information in my research. Ah, fair enough. Yeah, so in addition to the similarities to the other victims, uh, police had actually found a new piece of evidence on Helen's body as well, and this was several tiny flecks of industrial paint that would be used for, well, painting industrial <laughs> things. <laughs> um, nowadays, this might be a relatively helpful piece of evidence because we have so much, uh, like, forensic techniques we can use to identify like where the paint came from or what's composed in the paint. Um, however, as this was the 1960s, forensics was not as good as it is now. And all the paint really did for them was help them build a potential profile of either the killer or where the, where the victims were stored prior to being found. So these flecks led police to theorize that the killer was an industrial worker who frequently came into contact with paint at work and transferred it onto the victims unintentionally, or alternatively was, uh, had access to a storage area or workplace um, that happened to have paint in or around it that he would bring the bodies to before he ended up discarding them where they were found. But either way, it is widely believed uh, that the bodies were brought to where they were discovered. They weren't killed where they were found. Right. So despite this apparent new lead in the case, it didn't actually lead anywhere and the killer remained active and on the loose. So the first, uh, sorry, the next official victim 
um, was discovered in the early morning of July 14th, 1964. Uh, she was propped up in a sitting position um, against a garage in a residential neighborhood in Chiswick, which was very close to the location of the other two victims. Again, potentially because of the heavy presence of police at the river, they suspect this might be why she was discarded of in a residential neighborhood. Um, however, her name, uh, the name of the victim was Mary Fleming. She was 30 years old and also a mother of four. Um, and her marriage had just recently ended and she had turned to prostitution, possibly to make ends meet to continue caring for her children. Like all of the other victims, she was also of short stature. She was found naked and missing her front teeth. Um, however, this time, um, it was found that she was either choked or suffocated as opposed to being strangled. Uh, and basically, the difference of this is uh, if you're choked, then there's something inside your airways preventing uh, airflow or oxygen, um, whereas strangulation is like an external force to the airway that prevents oxygen or air from getting to the brain. Okay, I was just going to ask, so I thought they were the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're very similar, but slightly different. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, like the last victim, there were paint flecks found um, on Mary's body as well, uh, which again confirmed to police that this was most likely the same killer that was committing these. Unfortunately, um, as this was the 60s, as I said, the paint flex still didn't do much for them other than confirming a profile of a potential killer. So the this scene that she was found in uh, actually had a few potential witnesses. Um, none of them saw the crime happen, and no one actually saw when the body was placed there. Um, however, as it was very early in the morning, there were pretty much everybody was at home and some were getting ready for work. Um, and multiple people in the neighborhood reported hearing a car reversing down the street shortly before the discovery of Mary's body. I don't personally know how they tell the difference between a car reversing and a car driving forward if they're just listening, but maybe I just don't know enough about cars. I think they do sound a little bit different, but I'm also okay. thinking of like a Hot Wheels car and how it sounds different going backwards <laughs> than forward, so I'm maybe not the most trustworthy source on this. <laughs> So despite the multiple people hearing a car backing down the road, it unfortunately wasn't enough to lead police to any new information on the case other than the bodies were probably being, again, brought to the location that they're being found. So after um, Mary's body was discovered, there was around a three-month gap in the killings, or at the very least of bodies being discovered. Um, as the fifth victim wasn't discovered until the 25th of November in 1964. It was on this day that the body of 21-year-old Margaret McGowan was discovered in an alleyway on High Street in Kensington. Uh, Kensington was a more fashionable high-end area of West London, so they thought this was really uncharacteristic of Jack the Stripper as all of his previous victims were found uh, in suburban areas near the Thames River. Um, and this was a very, like, industrial happening place. So, besides being a different location, um, like every other victim, Margaret was a prostitute, um, but, however, she was known as a high-end call girl um, because she was hired by more high-profile clients, like politicians. Um, and, actually, she was even a witness on the stand for a really famous uh, scandal 
with British politicians to do with uh, having an extramarital affair. I am not positive of what this trial was called right now. It's blanking. However, if you look up Francis Brown, um, British politician, 1960s, it'll most likely come up. The reason it'll probably come up under Francis Brown is because uh, Margaret McGowan was more of a high-end sex worker. She had an alias to kind of keep her safe, and this alias she went by was Francis Brown. So sources often switch between the two names when they're referring to her in this case. Besides being in a new area, pretty much all the other details were the same. She was short. She was found naked and strangled. She was missing her front teeth. She had paint flecks on her body, um, which, as we're coming to see, is becoming more and more frequent as the victim count gets higher. With the murder of Margaret came a lead that sounded much more promising than it turned out to be. A friend of Margaret had told police that she'd last seen her getting into a car with one of her clients in October, and that was the last time that anyone had seen Margaret. The friend was pretty suspicious of this, thinking it could have been the killer since she was found a month later, so she went to police and gave them a description of the client she saw in the car, as well as the make and model of the car she was picked up in, which was a Ford Zodiac. Despite the fact that they now have a visual profile and the car he was driving, police were still unable to find the identity of the killer, and this didn't actually bring them much forward in the case. So the final confirmed victim was found on the 16th of February, 1965, and this was almost a complete year after the discovery of Hannah Telford's body. This body was partially mummified and belonged to 28-year-old Bridget O'Hara, It was found by an electrician who was on his way to work, uh, and on his way to work, he saw a pair of feet with toenails painted red sticking out from behind a storage shed in Acton, which was somewhat nearby uh, the first four murders. Bridget was born in Ireland, but she moved to London and began working in the sex industry, again, because she was trying to just make a little bit more money to live comfortably. Um, She went missing on the 11th of January, and it's believed that her body was actually kept somewhere in storage for at least a couple weeks prior to being placed where she was found. Um, And this is believed because although she was naked, strangled, missing teeth, had paint flecks like the previous victims, what was new was that her body was actually in a partial state of mummification. And this suggested to them that where her body was stored was a warm and dry environment. Uh, And they believe this because in a very warm and dry environment, it is likely that a body can start to mummify within a couple weeks. Um, And she wouldn't mummify within a couple weeks if she had directly been placed outside in the cold, damp, wet London winter. So there was a massive investigation surrounding the Hammersmith murders. Um, The Scotland Yard had actually... Uh, called their most experienced and respected investigator out of vacation. His name was Chief Superintendent John DeRose. They called him uh, off his vacation to work on this case. He was nicknamed Five Day Johnny (laughs) because of his supposed ability uh, to solve cold cases within a really short time frame. He was apparently notorious for this. Um, And DeRose requested an incredibly large investigative team for this case. In all, they hired about an extra 600 officers to work on it. Um, And this was a group of about 300 strong special patrol officers, about 200 plainclothes detectives, and also 100 extra uniformed police officers. 
So during the investigation, they ended up interviewing over 7,000 men who worked in the area that the final body was found. Um, and they also followed countless leads and all of them came up to no avail. Every single lead was a dead end. Um, even today, people are still speculating about who the killer could be, but nothing is actually leading us anywhere. Um, uh, in addition to the 7,000 men interviewed, they also intensively searched every area surrounding where the victims were found. I believe it said um, just in the Heron Industrial Estate alone, where the final body was found, they scrutinized the ground of about a 24 mile radius so very big area and they didn't find any more um evidence so despite their best sorry (laughs) despite their best efforts no identity for jack the stripper was ever confirmed jack the stripper's last confirmed victim was bridget o'hare in february of 1965 um it's unclear why the killer decided to stop when he did and it's also a little unclear about how many victims may have come before hannah tailford uh and who was the first confirmed victim i i keep saying confirmed victim uh because despite the fact that they aren't confirmed it's heavily heavily believed that there were two victims prior to hannah tailford um and these two were hannah fig who was 21 years old she was last seen getting in a car with an unknown man on June 16th of 1959, and her body was found just the following morning on a path at Duke's Meadow, which is very close uh, to where the bodies were found in Thames River. Um, and it had signs of sexual assault and was also strangled and naked from the waist down with the shirt torn open to express or to show her bare breasts. Um, so it was a little different than Jack the Stripper's other victims but it's somewhat it's similar enough that it raises questions and then the second possible victim that i briefly mentioned earlier her name was gwyneth reese she was just 22 years old and she was also petite like the others her body was found in the river in mortlake which was across from duke's meadow completely naked except for one sock and was also strangled Despite the similarities of these murders to the ones that began just a couple years later, they were never included in the final victim count of Jack the Stripper because they look a little different. Um, so if you look up the case of Jack the Stripper, you're probably going to get um, answers that are saying he had six victims and you're going to get some that say he had eight victims. It all just depends on how strongly you believe um, Elizabeth Fig and Gwyneth Reese uh, were actually victims of Jack the Stripper. So... Just like the two cases uh, that Nicole and Journey discussed, and just like the theme of this episode, unfortunately, Jack the Stripper, his true identity is still not known. So we still haven't solved who killed these six or eight women. Um, And it's unclear whether we ever will, unless they kept the evidence enough that we can use today's forensic sciences to look into it. But yeah, that's the story of Jack the Stripper. I'm sorry, Journey, that he wasn't actually a stripper. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you for ending our Unsolved Case episode with that. So our next episode is going to be on the Russian serial killer Anatoly Muskvin. I think I pronounced that wrong, but we'll figure it out. 
Um, and mummified bodies and remains. I know Journey is very, very excited about this one. <laughs> so it yeah. should be a good episode. And we're also going to talk about the forensic significance of this. Um, so I have a joke for you guys. Did you hear about the case of the missing toilet? No. It's still unsolved because the police have nothing to go on. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, Rebecca, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, all at What the Forensics. Um, on Twitter, we are WT Forensics PC, although we aren't as active on that, so make sure you're keeping up with our Instagram and Facebook for uh, new updates. Um, our website is whatthefrensics.ca, where you can uh, we have a form where you can ask us about new episodes to do or have any questions. Or you could just email your questions to whattheforensics at gmail.com. Amazing. We've also added ballpoint pens to our shop. So we now have stickers and pens. Um, But this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed this one and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm